The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Dr. Christina Edmondson. I get the pleasure of serving as one of the residents and scholars for Koinonia Site, and an even greater honor to read scripture to you and with you this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 through 26. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. After being captured by him, to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dr. Edmondson, for reading that wonderful passage of scripture for us. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Paul Lim, and I have the distinct pl- uh, pleasure and privilege to serve here at Christ Prayers as the uh, scholar in residence since 2016, 
And my other daytime job is I teach at Vanderbilt University as a professor in the Divinity School as well in, as well in the religion department. So it's a great delight to be able to balance both these two interesting worlds together. And so, um, yeah, so uh, I met someone from uh, traveling, uh, I guess lived, just moved to uh, Nashville from Charleston, South Carolina, as well as some members of our connect group here. So. I can't I can tell you enough that I'm so excited to be able to worship God together in person with you. We were here, my wife and I, and, and our son were here last Sunday for the first time in several months. And so it's really a proof to me that life is best done together. So if you're able and willing, let's pray uh, as we look at God's word. Gracious Lord and our wonderful Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies that are new every day. Lord, as we have heard the scriptures read, we are about to hear it explained and proclaimed. Lord, may you hide your servant behind the cross, and only that which is yours and yours alone be implanted in our hearts, so that they may bear fruit thirty, sixty, hundredfold, all unto your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have been going through a new sermon series called Life Together, Reflections and Studies on 2 Timothy, which as many of you may be aware, that was his last letter that he wrote, right? And, and plus, we can kind of gather from various sources that it seems pretty clear that Paul himself knew that this might be his last letter and his end was also quite near. So 2 Timothy contains elements that are very intensely personal, and yet with poignantly universal significance. Paul is also writing in a time of mounting unrest and political instability, not too dissimilar to ours, I might add. It is like that the outbreak, likely that the outbreak of the first major persecution against Christians in Rome under Emperor Nero had begun around 64 AD, and many scholars say that this letter was written shortly after that as a response to the major fire that broke out in that city. So it was not an easy time to be a religious and cultural minority in Rome. Christians had no special status, and as a new religious movement, it suffered all the typical derision and suspicion from the culture despisers of the eternal city of Rome and much beyond. This letter, then, is a distillation of love and wisdom from an old mentor who knows his end is near, and his letter dispatched to his protege, someone who, is, who was obviously much less seasoned, less mature, and even far less confrontational and self-assured than Paul himself. In other words, we're reading someone else's mail, or to put it in today's parlance, we're reading someone else's email right now. And we want to kind of put our thoughts together and see what Paul was trying to emphasize and what messages he was trying to, trying to convey to his special friend, a son in the faith, Timothy. And in so doing, we hope to glean some insights into our own spiritual journey toward the eternal city of God. So the main thesis of this portion of the letter that we have read uh, from Dr. Edmondson is this. Paul wants Timothy to become increasingly competent at handling the word of truth. Timothy's uh, occupation or vocation was a church planter or minister. He was called to do it, and he was uh, apparently pretty uh, trepidatious or nervous about what it all entailed, and Paul really wants to assuage Timothy of his anxieties and also assure him of the conviction and the calling that God has upon Timothy. 
So Paul knew that the growth of the gospel movement called the Jesus movement depended on how the message got transmitted to ensure most accurate and faithful transfer and transmission of the message. Not only was the message itself important, but also the messenger oneself. So in today's sermon, we'll ask the three questions from the text as a way of hopefully better understanding it and applying it to our lives as well. So the three questions are as follows. Question number one, what are you looking at? I don't mean by that like, you know, what I would hear in my old city of Philadelphia. What are you looking at? If you look at somebody a little bit too long, they would say, what are you looking at? That's not what I mean. It's simply asking all of us, what are we looking at? Your field of vision matters, so what are you looking at? Second question is, whose team are you on? Whose team are you on? Or a phrase differently, it's all about participation trophies, or is it? Third question is, how does the end justify the means? Or differently put, it all depends on what the end is. How does the end justify the means? So the three questions, once again, what are you looking at? Whose team are you on? And how does the end justify the means? So let's move quickly along to the first question. What are you looking at? 25 years ago, uh, a movie came out, and maybe I've lost you just now by saying 25 years ago, but please bear with me, okay? 25 years ago, a movie came out. Some good things did come out 25 years ago, and the ending of this movie has been catapulted into an almost a legendary status. There is at least 10 and counting more parodies and riffs in movies, sitcoms, and comedy sketches, including Key and Peele, that illustrate its enduring iconic significance. I'm talking about the movie, you ready for this? The Usual Suspects. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, and the ending of that movie is really, really unforgettable. It's, uh, and my son, after he was here for the first service, he said, you should have shown that video. I said, no, then it'll, people lose the whole sermon by watching the the end of the movie, so, so, but, so you can do it at, at, at your leisure after this if you like, but it's a confrontation between Vrobel Clint, a.k.a. Kaiser Soze, and this uh, uh, U.S. Marshal agent, Agent Kuyan. And the ending goes like this, and it really illustrates the importance of what we are looking at. Um, Kaiser Soze, played by Kevin Spacey, says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that it did not exist. Sounds a lot like C.S. Lewis's, you know, the screw tape letters, and I think it's a riff off of that, actually. And he began to tell a story about this mythical figure, the gangster upon all gangsters named Kaiser Soze. And he talked about when he was a member of this barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois, and also about a guy in California named Redfoot, who was obviously enormous, like an orca, and also about the time when he was in Guatemala working in a coffee farm. And this, this mythical figure, his kind of enormity grows by the moment. And then he talked about Kaiser Soze's lawyer named Mr. Kobayashi. Do you remember, if you have seen the movie, how he came up with that fabulous or fantastic narrative? After verbal, Clint, a.k.a. Kaiser Soze, leaves the room, which was only the chance, the only chance that Asian Kuyan had to capture the real Kaiser Soze, Kuyan is smug that he did the right thing. You know, okay, we let this guy go. 100% clueless about the fact that he let the devil himself walk out that door. Then he is enjoying a nice lukewarm mug of coffee with his fellow agent, and he's facing the bulletin board, and his gaze fell on the board itself. Scanning the board for a few seconds, he drops his coffee mug and then rushes out of the room to capture what he now knows to be Kaiser Soze himself. 
So Kaiser Soze came up with that fictitious fake news by looking at what? The bulletin board in front of him. By picking up words such as Quartet, Skokie, Illinois, as in the manufacturer of that bulletin board at the bottom left corner, and Redfoot as a, a description of a wanted suspect, as well as Mr. Kobayashi, as in Kobayashi porcelain, at the bottom of Agent Kuyan's mug. So by looking at that bulletin board and the agent's mug, Kaiser Soze was able to come up with a story, fanciful story, of this Kaiser Soze's existence and identity. Kaiser Soze came up with that entire story by looking at a certain thing. So the question for me as well as for you is, what are you looking at? What do you look at to pick up clues and cues for meaning of life? What defines success and failure and faith, hope, and love? We become what we look at all the time. If you're a tennis player, I'm guessing you're not spending a lot of time reading Runner's World or Ballet magazines or drummer blogs. You look at what interests you, etc. So what does Paul, the mentor, tell his protege to look at? Notice with me in verse 8. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. Bingo. Look at Jesus Christ. And do that by remembering his resurrection from the dead and his genealogy. Why those two things? What are you looking at, Timothy asks Paul. Look at Christ. And Paul demonstrates it beautifully by not focusing so much on his experience of incarceration. As was read for us earlier, yes, he's bound in chains like a criminal. And those three words, like a criminal, hit me like a ton of bricks. It's, the NIV doesn't render it like that. And yes, he was bound in chains like a criminal, and yet he doesn't focus on himself. It seems that this was his second time in the infamously terrifying Roman jail, and yet Paul's focus is not on him. He says, even though I'm bound in chains, but the word of God is not bound. So we should ask, what was the apostle Paul looking at toward the end of his own life? He was looking at, obviously, Christ, and the word of Christ, the good news of the gospel, and the children of God whom he calls the elect. He was really focused on others, less on self. Furthermore, I would say that his was not a performance-based self-worth. Performance-based self-worth. Paul knew that the beginning and the end of his gospel, the good news was not how many people heard Paul preach. No, it was all the way through only about Jesus. Paul was not looking at himself to derive any sense of significance and worth Performance-based self-worth is what is all around us, all around me, and all around you. We derive our sense of self based on what I've done, how I've done at school, how I've done at work, how I'm crushing in relationships, how I'm crushing in leadership roles, or, or conversely, getting crushed at work or at home or at school. But dearly beloved, I'm here to tell me and you that that measurement system will never lead us a sense of true peace, true identity, tranquility, and joy. For Paul, who can easily be deemed a loser in society, because here's a guy behind bars, he knew the secret sauce to true joy in life. His self was actually performance-based, just not his performance, but the performance of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, remember Jesus Christ, his resurrection and his genealogy. 
He rose from the dead, and he was indeed someone who reversed a curse. We'll have more to say about that. He was a descendant of David, and yet he rose from the dead from a Jewish particularism to Christian universalism. And yet there was no sense of supersessional replacement theology. Paul knew that the hope of ancient Israelites was resurrection from the dead, as was shot right the way through a lot of the prophetic writings. And David was the king above all kings in the history of Israel. So it is this Christ who came as an ordinary human being. Most of his disciples did not know the significance of Jesus until after the resurrection, who was a giver of salvation with eternal glory. So I need to be asking us, who are we looking at? I was having coffee with a friend of mine recently, and we both confessed the fact that we tend to focus on the tangibles, what we can see and feel and touch and hear. So rather than walk by faith, not by sight, my friend and I confess that we either walk by faith and by sight, or worse yet, we walk by sight and not by faith. What do I mean by that? Paul says, right, we walk by faith and not by sight. But so often I find myself walking by faith and by sight. I want some kind of tangible proof that I am okay with God. I want to look around in my world and say, you know, these things are happening, so this must be a blessing that I'm of the elect. You know who came up with that idea? Benjamin Franklin, heaven helps those who help themselves, or this uh, thinker, uh, uh, Max Weber, who wrote about the, uh, uh, the, the Protestantism and the spirit of capitalism, who basically said, okay, if you want to make sure that you belong to God, you want to look around and if there are some kind of a confirmation of your material blessings, then that must be a sign that God is with you and for you. I'm here to tell you that that's a terrible and tragic bastardization of the gospel. And I think I fall prey to it every day of my life. I tend to judge by the ways of the standards of the world. And I'm guessing that most of you are right there with me as well. It's a daily battle and an hourly battle. My Self-worth is based upon someone else's performance. Yes, my, I have that performance-based self-worth, but I need to remember, and you need to remember, that it is the performance of Jesus that is daily transferring the credit onto my account, reminding me that I need to be looking at Jesus, the resurrected one and the son of David himself. I need to re-examine my field of vision. What is my bulletin board? What does the bottom of my porcelain mug say as to whose I am? What are you really looking at and reminding us to look at Christ, his resurrection, the word that transforms our world, and the real hope of glory is the only way for us to walk by faith precisely because the tangible often tells us half-truth, which in the end is no truth at all. Um, I've been teaching this uh, uh, Wednesday evening class, uh, Foundations of Faith and uh, um, Work, and one of the uh, persons participating said something that I'll never forget. She said that when she was in sixth grade, one of her elders in the church came and told them about the importance of work, and he was a factory worker. And in most people's standards, a factory worker may not be so high in someone's kind of, you know, hierarchy of being. And yet, this elder of this church, who was a factory worker, shared about the importance of work and how God calls us into all facets of the profession of the world to himself. 
And I was sitting there in the Zoom session and really blown away that, ah, I daily buy into the evaluation system of the world. I imperceptibly realize that maybe a factory worker is not as high in the scheme of God. Yet, no, that's not it at all. So I need to actually have my vision daily checked and re-examined as I'm asking me and you, what are you looking at? Moving quickly to the second point then, whose team are you on? Or another way to frame this question is it is all about participation trophies. So well, whose team do you participate in is the crucial question then, isn't it? I mean, one of the effects of coronavirus, COVID-19, has been the sort of a halting or kind of relative stopping of a lot of athletic activities. And maybe that was a reminder for some of us as to how, what, what significance sports has on many people's lives. I'm certainly one of them. And I remember the example of my dad. So I have my, many Catholic friends who have their own liturgical calendar, church calendar. I have Orthodox friends and Episcopal friends that have their own kind of church calendars. My dad's Protestant. You know what calendar he goes by every, every year? Sports calendar. Well, now the football season's over. Now the NBA's on and the NHL is on, the MLB's on. You're probably laughing and you kind of know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, sports is such a big thing. And so the question is, whose team are you on? Right? Um, I have a friend who's, a, who's a, an avid. He rises up very early on Sunday mornings. He wa- and not to come to church, but he watches. He's a... a absolute worshiper of this highest form of soccer ability called English Premier League. He watches, he's a big time Man U fan, Manchester United fan, and, uh, and he kind of, for him, like, this is a semi-deity, semi-god itself. I came to realize, and when I was in grad school in England, I, I became a big time Liverpool fan, not because I like all those players, I think they're great. I like Liverpool when they were bad, now they're doing great, but what I like about this team, and I've shared this in a sermon a couple of years ago, is that their anthem, their kind of team song, is called, You Never Walk Alone. And to hear those people singing with the, with the banner waving, it is basically like a worship service because they're singing this song, almost teary-eyed, reminding one another, if you become a fan of Liverpool United Football Club, you will never walk alone. And, you know, I think that's what we have to be singing. I'm not that you never walk alone that song, but in that same spirit that if you're actually walking with Jesus, if you remember that Jesus is walking with you, you are never, ever alone. And he's calling us to look at him. Look at me and nothing else. It is almost as if we're walking on water like Peter was. And Jesus says, all you need to do is look at me. The circumstances and the valuation systems will say that your stock price hit rock bottom as well as hit sky high. But none of that ultimately really matters. Because I will never leave you alone. Whose team are we on? So notice with me in verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those were his. Watch that. The Lord knows those were his. And also in verse 22, so flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The truth of God is this. God knows. The Lord knows. Well, then we have to ask, the Lord knows what? The Lord knows those were his. It's not about God's knowledge of all things contingent and absolute, you know, past, present, and future. Those God does know for sure. But in this particular instance, what Paul is wanting to do is zero in on divine knowledge of those who are his, that you belong to me. That's the most precious knowledge there was for God as well as for us, that you belong to team God. Do you know what team you're on? 
What team are you rooting for always? The truth of God, the truth of who God is and whose we are is important for us to know. And this truth is four things. One, it is participatory. It is knowing those who are his and those whose you are. Then we participate in the life of God, in the liturgy of the word read and eaten and drunk, as well as just fellowship of believers. It is that participatory knowledge. In participating, we get the trophy of belonging to the team, team that is invincible and eternal. That truth is also communal. As Paul reminds his disciples, uh, disciple protege Timothy, to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And notice this, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart, along with other people. You never go at it alone. As Liverpool fans will sing, you never walk alone. This is right here. You sing and you praise the name of the Lord along with those who call on him from a pure heart. It is thoroughly also consequential. As Paul reminds Timothy that twisting of truth and making it a cause for quarreling only ruins the hearers. He says, you know what? This truth needs to be really kept and preserved and propagated and transmitted in its purest form because if you don't do so, it'll have a twisting effect and disastrous consequences. Fourthly, it is experimental. Experimental, I don't mean drug experiments. I mean you can test it out. Paul says, flee certain things and pursue certain others because they can be and have been tested to be true. So here, friends, I don't mean to suggest some kind of salvational behaviorism. You're not saved by what you do or don't do. Yet, to suggest that what you do has nothing to do with the formation of your character and self would be flying in the face of reality. For example, if you want to get better in your Fortnite game, or FIFA 21, you should invest more time in it. Play those games more. After the first sermon, uh, one of the parents came up to me and said, you know what, that's the only thing my son remember from your sermon about playing more Fortnite games. That's exactly right. If you want to get better at something, play more of it. Be more in it. Okay, parents, you didn't hear this, but I was only trying to get the middle school students' attention here. So if you want to get better, let's use a better example, okay? If you want to be better in algebra, Everyone happy with it, right? If you want to get better in algebra, you should not be spending time watching reruns of The Office or Stranger Things. No, no, no. There's a correlation between what you spend time doing and what you might be getting better at all at or becoming part of that team. So here's something that uh, recently surprised me. I've been teaching Gotham for the past four years. That uh, Gotham is a faith and, uh, faith and work intensive run out of the NIFW, which is ministry of our church called Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. And only recently it dawned on me that God is a real team player, after all. Sounds like a truism. Yes, God has created us in God's image, imago Dei, as theologians would call it. And furthermore, God outsources the work that God could have easily done himself to human agents who bear and reflect the image of God in how we carry on our work. Right? Let's dwell on that a little bit. Yeah, God outsources the work that God could easily do himself. That God actually calls us his partners, covenant partners and agents in doing God's bidding. Then it hit me like a ton of bricks that you and I are on team Trinity. You're on God's team. And God has called you to be on that team, not as the last person picked, as was probably my experience of, you know, people picking like five on five and you were the last person picked. That's kind of terrifying experience. But no, no, God says, no, you had me at eternity. Remember that movie, Jerry Maguire? You had me at a hello? God says, I had you at eternity. 
even before anything at all came to be, I knew you. And so whose team are you on? Lastly, let's move to the third question. How does the end justify the means? Notice with me in verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Also in verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now that I've tried your patience here, why on earth does Paul tell his protege to be patient and kind and not get into verbal MMA matches or debates? Here is why. For Paul, the eternal, or as theologians call, eschatological end does justify the means of patiently bearing up with the silliness and weakness, idiocy, insanity, and idolatry of his congregants and opponents. Sometimes, to be honest, they're in the same congregation. Because the Lord knows those who are his, and that the Lord, and here's a key, might use that patience of Paul and Timothy to grant those who are currently rebellious Repent, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and come to their senses and escape from the snares of the devil. To put it in a plain language, what Paul is saying is this. Paul is telling Timothy, you know, times aren't going to get easy. People will actually not listen to you. You will have a hard time conveying the truth of the gospel, but be patient. Be patient. I don't know about you, but the virtue that I find myself lacking more and more in my life is patience. Especially when you think you got it all figured out. I don't know about you, but I'm so quick to speak and so slow to listen. And again, the reversal of what the Apostle Paul says we should be. Apostle James, rather, tells us. Paul says, you know what, Timothy? You got to be patient because people aren't going to get it. They're a bunch of knuckleheads. But you know what? God loves them. God is at work in them. God is not through with them yet. So be patient and please be not quarrelsome because that's our immediate temptation. We would like to tell the other opponent how wrong they are, how immoral they are, how stupid they are, and we are so right. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Wait upon the Lord because the end, the return of Christ, and the consummation of all things beautiful will indeed bring about justifying the means of your patience, how patient you are, and how you feel like I am so on the outside. So friends... It is political season right now, isn't it, right? In three weeks, we're going to kick off the series, three-week sermon series on po politics. And uh, I think I'm doing something in it too. And, and I was like, oh, man, why me? Why this and why now, right? But we feel it intensely all around us. Signage in our yards, petitions of this sort, emails come in. You know, and I get daily emails from Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi and so many other people. And I, first of all, I saw that in my inbox. I was like, well, they email me. Well, it's like a spam mail. So all kinds of emails come our way. It seems that during this period of our life together in 2020, we must remember the word quarrelsome. Let us not be quarrelsome. I know we have so many, even after the service, somebody came up and said, you know what, this is why I should vote this way, and so should you, Paul. I said, right, and I just remember the word quarrelsome. Be not quarrelsome, Paul, because we're so, I don't know about you, but I'm so quick to speak. So quick to judge, so slow to listen, so slow to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. You know what Jonathan Edwards said about uh, what true love is? 
the fruit of charity, he says, is giving the people the benefit of the doubt. When I read that for the first time, it really convicted me big time because I am, especially if I don't like you, I'm not going to give you any benefit of doubt. Of course you're like that. And yet, that's exactly where I need to really come full clean and say, Lord, if you really had me at eternity, please continue to be at work in my life because the end should justify the means here. It is repeated three times the word quarrelsome in this letter as Paul knew that a quarrelsome minister loses both the hearers and the message itself since we're proclaiming the king of peace whose kingdom was not and is not of this world. To the extent then, friends, we make our salvation about this world, this worldly validation of my self-worth, to the same extent we lose the saltiness and wattage from our light. I need that reminder as I think about my own life. Remember, our life is not and should not be a system of performance-based self-worth measured by where I work, how much I earn, where I live, who my friends are or might be. The more we choose to identify with Christ, remembering that the Lord knows those who are his, the saner and less neurotic I become, and so you shall be as well. I want to end this sermon with this story. It's a story of a prison chaplain he was, as was his professional responsibility, visiting different prisons, seeing what was working out well and what, what, what weren't. And he toured a prison formerly notorious for intra-prison gang violence and warfare. Yet somehow he had heard that in a couple of years' time, this infamous prison became a beacon of hope for prison reform. So the prison war led this chaplain to, um, to the very place where the reform had begun and spread on its wings. He was taken to a dimly lit dungeon of a solitary confinement cell. It was dimly lit because there was votive candles, and he saw a small crucifix in the corner, about which the warden said, there he is. Jesus is here doing time for all of us. Jesus is doing time for all of us. I've been at Vanderbilt for the last 15 years, and my favorite place to teach is not at Vanderbilt, it's not at Christ's prayers, but it is at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. I go there as a son of a political prisoner myself. Every time I go there, I feel like I'm visiting my dad. Every time I go into prison, I realize that, you know what? The only thing that separates me from my brothers over here is the wall between us. We're all saved by God's grace. And, so, and one of the things that I'm reminded of again and again is that had it not been for the grace of God, go I. And so... When the warden said to this prison chaplain, Jesus is here doing time for all of us. Jesus is doing time for all of us. Here's a story of radical substitution. Jesus took our place, your place, my place, and he was crucified as Paul reminds his protege, Timothy, that same crucified Jesus has risen again from the dead. And this one's return, the final end, does justify the means of bearing up with all. Not being quarrelsome, being patient, teaching with gentleness, and really hoping for the end to come, really explaining the present dilemmas that we have. So dearly beloved, what are you looking at? We become what we look at all the time. We're looking at the Eucharistic elements as we have here, albeit in a smaller measures. I did it for the first time today. I was really in fear and trembling, especially trying to do the because there's a warning came, be careful, super careful when you lift the second thing. And this is it right here. Do your best to remember this statement. Friends, you ready? We eat, therefore we are.
You might say, yeah, I'm a vegan. I eat that. Yes, yes, that's right. Or if you're gluten-free or if you're, you know, omnivore or whatever it is, we eat, therefore we are. This means we eat the body of Christ, and this body of Christ that we're about to participate in is what defines us. Theologians like to call it the Eucharistic ontology of the body of Christ. What a mouthful. And it means, simply put this, that this Eucharistic element, this is what essentially defines and nourishes and sustains us. That what is the Eucharist? Eucharisto means, I give thanks. That means we give praise unto the Lord for the Lord's gracious intrusion upon our life. Above all else, a Christian community is one that gives praise to the Lord's intervention in our history, intrusion in our life's journeys, and gracious embrace of our fractured and fragmented stories. So we eat, therefore we are, tells us whose team we are on. And that reminds us the end of Christ's death was for our own life and our own salvation, as well as the true restoration of the cosmos as God is in the process of unhurried and sure process of restoring all things unto himself because Christ reversed the curse of the serpent for us. So let us pray as we close this segment of worship as we enter into this other segment that is as we eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Jesus unto our eternal nourishment. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and glorious God, we thank you for your reminder for us this morning that we belong to you, that we are to look at you, your death and resurrection, and your soon-to-come return. Thank you for reminding us that we belong to Team Trinity. Thank you for reminding us that the end justify the means of our bearing up with all weaknesses of ourselves and of others. And as we participate in this beautiful meal of reminding us and causing us to participate in the life triune, these elements, may these elements really lift our hearts unto yourself as we do so now with faith, hope, and love. In your name we pray. Amen.